Hello, everybody. This is Brian. Now, if you're listening to this, you probably know that I'm in a band called Ninja Sex Party. But what you may not know is that Ninja Sex Party is currently on tour. So we're, we're touring all over the U.S. and one date in Canada and Toronto. But if you want to see us, we'd really appreciate that. Go to ninjasexparty.com slash tour for tickets. And also, I'm doing some solo shows, which we're calling Ninja Brian's All-Star Variety Spectacular. You'll see me, the Super Guitar Bros. Jim Roach and I are going to do some of our tracks from our band, Go Banana Go. The other thing, I'm doing my smooth jazz stuff there, too. I've never played these before, some of my new smooth jazz tracks. You can get those tickets at ninjasexparty.com slash tour as well. Episode eight, eight what now? No, it's seven, seven eighty, seventy nine, or what? It doesn't matter. But way up there, just numbers. Yeah, just consistency. That's the only thing I have going for me. <laughs> have you ever taken a week off since you started? I took two weeks off back in June for the first time, like ever. This past June. This past June, sixteen years in, I was like, yeah, I'm like, take two weeks off. And it was like, came back and I had stuff to talk about. It was great. I had stuff to talk about. It's like, oh my <laughs> wow, God. Wow, what's that like? <laughs> I would have a week off like once every two years, but I would still post something. I'm like, I'm like Steve Novella too, who hasn't had a week off in 17 years. Which is just amazing. Like, and the fact that he's doing it all, editing himself still. Yeah. And also the quality on your show and their show is still so high. For them, for sure. You get into a groove, which is the funny thing too, where like, if the show goes well and it's easy, then I worry like, oh, wait a minute. Have I not worked hard enough on this episode? Is it like, is what I'm doing too pat, you know, too obvious? Like, have I made a groove or a rut? Whatever opportunity there is to worry, I will seize it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot like playing, right? Completely. Obviously, given the kind of music that you've been playing for so long with the wedding band, like right. at some point, you're probably sort of going on autopilot for a lot of those. Yeah. Tunes, yeah. There's right? aspects of that. But there is that also thing like if you aren't aware of your surroundings and there's a little bit of whatever, then you kind of get freaked out by that where it's like, okay, am I so just a crusty has been that I just don't give a shit about anything, you know? So there's that worry that enters into it too. Like, I don't want to be that. My guy should be a little nervous. I mean, that's part of the reason I actually sort of stopped being with the band because I was getting so anxious about these weddings because I don't know if we talked about this last time, but you know, there's so much money that's thrown around for these weddings, which there are many reasons I wanted to get out. One of them was because the entire wedding machine is such a scam, just across the board. And I was a cog in this scam of like, oh, okay, you want to hire the band? Here's what we cost for this wedding. Now, the night before, we'll be playing for one-tenth the amount. We'll probably do more songs and work harder because it's a festival or it's a bar or it's a concert venue. You know, that's Friday night. We'll get, you know, a thousand bucks for the band. Saturday, we'll get 14,000 bucks for the band. You know, and it's like, it's the same people. It's the same music. It's the same thing. But we just we're charging that because we can, because the entire wedding industry is a scam. And that was 20 what years for you? 24. Wow. 24 years. Yeah. Did you see it like get worse over time? You mean the wedding industry? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone wanted to get their pound. And again, because you can. So the florists and the caterers and the uplighting and the sound people and the people that give the candles and the people that park the car. It's like everybody realized, oh, there is this 
cash cow that sort of is here now that we all have to, I'm going to mix metaphors like crazy, but we all have to latch onto the teat as best as we can. And it's just distasteful. And once social media kind of came into it, you start getting that thing of like, not only do we have to have the event be fantastic, now it has to be fantastic for the cameras and we have right. to manufacture these moments. So there's like, could we maybe do something where, you know, cannons come out of the bass drum for the vows? <laughs> and you just start thinking like, uh, I see wedding moments in movies, you know, and I go, oh crap, like someone's going to want this now. Someone's going to want <laughs> right. the trombone choir standing up, coming out of the cake because they saw it in, you know, Marry Me Susan, the movie. And that happens. There was one film. Oh, I forgot what it was, but it's like a scene in a church and like the trumpet players are in the thing and the guitarist stands up and then the, the horn players are there and the keyboardists and the singers are all joining in, like all impromptu, which mm -hmm. is like to actually do that is to plan something like that. Yeah, it's like, impossible. where are we going to plug in the amplifiers? How are they going to have speed? You know, where does this, <laughs> then we got a rehearsal. Totally. But after I saw that film, I thought someone's going to ask for this. And a year later it was like, oh, Love Actually, that's the movie, Love Actually said, have you ever seen Love Actually? We were thinking of like a Love Actually moment where it's like, no, we, no, oh. they can't. Have you ever had anyone ask you to retake something specifically for cameras? Like, hey, could you do that song again so no. we can- The only time we had a cousin of the bride was filming the wedding once. Of course, it was the cousin. And the camera was off for all the introductions. So we had to redo the introductions <laughs> for the camera. That was in New York. I remember that years ago. He was turning the camera off when he thought he was filming. So he had all this footage of like it looking at the floor and in the bag and all that. Uh, and then we finished and it was like 20 minutes later and he kind of came up. He's like, I didn't get any of the intros. Oh my God. Again. So I played it off like, all right, folks, that was the rehearsal. Let's try this again. You know, let's really get into it. And so, so that years later, none of us will remember that we're doing things the second time we can watch. And the response was great and everything. But it was like, really? That's why you don't hire your cousin to <laughs> well, do Well, and are people going to watch it? Yeah. Who is actually watching Maybe. the wedding videos? I feel like it's something you watch after your partner breaks up with you. Right. <laughs> you know, if they're edited right, if it's like a 10 minute thing, if the videographer has cut together something where it's like, oh, here's highlights. I could see that. But yeah, yeah, it's like the people that sit at the concerts like this. That's right. And they're at a two hour show with the phone. up. Yeah, again, I'm showing my age or whatever, but I'm like, are you like really going to watch that? Plus, most of these things are streamed anyway, which you can get access to. So it's like, yeah, for this tour, which we'll talk about, we are going to, for the first time, say, no phones, please. We will have yeah. a moment at the end when everyone can break out their phones and you can shoot that. You know, we'll be playing a song. That's your moment. But until then, please put the phones away because it is exactly that the whole time. I went to see Les Claypool's Bastard Jazz ah. here at the Ford recently. And you would think... Except, you know, Lee's obviously an amazing player and the musicians are just incredible. Yeah. And it was just a bad show start mm. to finish. It was hmm. Les would come out, he'd start doing some riff and then people would go apeshit on that one riff for like 15 minutes. It was jazz without chord changes. Yeah, that's the whole jammy thing, which really bugs me, where it's like there are some people yeah. that can do some interesting improvisatory explorations, but a lot of it is here's an E chord and let's kind of solo for 20 right. minutes. And it's, and it's like, like I know these musicians are better than this, but my point was not that the show was bad. I mean, the musicians were yeah. amazing. Actually, the sure. real revelation to me there, do you know Mike Dillon? Do you know this name? 
No, I don't think so. He's a percussionist and a mallets player, and he was playing vibes and marimba or xylophone, I'm not sure. He's like a punk rock vibes player. And he's, I mean, just an amazing technical player. And I was really blown away by him. But my point is this entire audience, this was the most aggressive audience <laughs> I've seen in years. A bunch of middle-aged people in like their Zappa and Primus gear. Yes. Where this is a seated amphitheater. It's like 600 people or so. Right. And half of them were pressing to the front, leaning over the lip of the stage with their camera, like pointing it in Les Claypool's face. And I was like, guys, can we please just like dial it back? Yeah. Jack White, when he has these shows, you give you a bag and you put the camera in the bag. Mm-hmm. Have you seen this? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So then it's sealed. And like, as you leave, they give you a code to open the bag back up. So you're holding on to your phone, but it's in like a microwave safe bag or whatever. I love that. I think that's a great idea. Dave Chappelle, some other comedians are doing that too, where it's like, you got to put the phone in the thing. Yep. You hold it, but then you can't film anything. What it- they did that at when I saw the 35th anniversary of Pee Wee's Big Adventure. They did that ah. because Paul Rubens came out and did a Q&A. Actually, I did the Paisley Park tour just after it opened in Minneapolis when I was out there yeah. visiting family. It was the same thing. Phone in the thing. And they gave you one moment. They have a obviously purple grand piano. This is Prince's purple grand piano. And <laughs> this is the moment when you can take out your phone and we will take a picture of you standing next to the purple piano. Right. And that piano is on five inch heels too. Interesting. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just to make it perfect for you. You know, I'm a huge, huge Prince fan. And I was expecting like complete bullshit by that tour, like cash grab. And it was awesome. Oh, uh, that's good to know. This is probably five or six years ago, maybe longer. But it was like, they really show you stuff. I paid a little more for the quote unquote VIP tour and they take you to like his VHS editing suite and all this stuff. And you really got to like see the place. And yeah, I I, I was blown away by how great it was. Speaking of less, I remember they did this tribute to Kings tour. Yes. Just to harp on less for a minute who I respect (laughs) tremendously. Yeah which is they were doing all of Farewell to Kings, which is this Rush album. When I heard that they were doing that, I was thinking, how are they going to sing that? Because it's all giddy. Yeah. <laughs> it's that super high. Back when he was still super high, hitting like open Bs and Cs and stuff. And so I finally saw some footage of people filming, obviously. And he's like singing all of it the octave down. It's like, really? It was weird. I thought, okay, should this bother me as much as it's bothering me? Because when you don't have the, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, but it's, oh, yeah. It's like not quite the... He really loses the tension. That's the whole kind of point of it. Like everything else is spot on the drum parts, the guitar, the synths. It's all great. And then Les is just doing probably half of the vocals an octave down, maybe two thirds. You know, it's like going to see someone sing Nesun Dorma and they're singing at the octave down. You're like, that's not fucking Nesun Dorma. Like you're not singing you know, Verdi anymore. You're doing whatever. It's just weird. This is definitely a less popular opinion, but I have the kind of same response to... Now I'm excited. (laughs) Well, I think you're with me on this with Danny Elfman's big mess where like, you know, he's older, he can't hit the high notes anymore, but it's like, for all the other things I didn't like about that album, that also was especially frustrating because he like almost sort of goes for it and it just feels like not very confident or like strong. It's like, oh man, (laughs) this is not the same. Did you hear that album, George? The new Elfman solo album? The new, no, no. I saw some footage of the show that he did in, where was the big show that Coachella. he did? Coachella, right. Which was like, oh my gosh, 80 people on stage or whatever. I'm like, good for you. Yeah, yeah. But what's the deal? 
True to its name, it's a big mess. Oh. Look, one of the early episodes of this podcast, discussion of Elfman, Boingo, all this stuff, big fans of both of us. We listened to this album and did like a kind of reaction thing to it. And we both hated it. Oh my gosh. It was like subpar nine inch nails. You know, really electronic. Oh my God. Us us politely after every single track trying to be like, I, you know, I liked the acoustic. Right. It, that, that part was good. And then we just gave up because it was bad. And a lot of people liked it. Like, yeah. you know, that, yeah. it, this is just our personal preference. And the lyrics were very on the nose about Trump. <sighs> you know, they're jackboots marching in the streets, you know, kind of like, right. it's like, okay. I agree with you, but also- Maybe we could be a little less on the nose. Maybe we could have gone past the first draft on these lyrics. Maybe we could have right. punched them up like a teensy right. bit. Metaphor or meta five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Title of the episode. <laughs> Speaking of disappointing Elfman, Brian, I Uh-oh. need to talk to you about this. Yes, tell me. You know, as I've repeatedly said on the show, I'm not watching more superhero shit. I'm done. But mm-hmm. Jory really wanted to watch Multiverse of Madness, and Jory is mm-hmm. the only person I will sit through a Marvel movie for. And so we watched it. Holy shit. <laughs> I just bad. Just fucking awful. I can't believe how fucking bad it was. My standards were low, but holy shit. <laughs> Well, and it's got like, you know, it's Sam Raimi, right? He's doing another thing. He's directing a Marvel movie. And did Elfman do the score? You didn't like the musical fight? The, the Beethoven fight? <sighs> I, I just didn't understand why anything. So you saw it, George? I saw it in the theaters, yeah. Yeah, I'm a sucker for that stuff. What did you think? For me, it's a Big Mac, which I know there is no nutritional value in it. But <laughs> that salt and fat is just so great. Yeah, and a lot of people... Like that too. Like there's yeah, tons of loose weirdness to it. But I am in such awe of the overall Marvel thing that you could have whatever it is, 31 movies and TV shows that all kind of still makes sense and is referential to itself in its weird, weird mm-hmm. way. You know, there are threads that just don't go anywhere or that are contradictory. But for the most part, for all of that to be in Kevin Feige's head, the, the big producer dude, the guy that runs the whole show, that to me is impressive just as a storyteller, as a story writer. It is certainly unprecedented, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. The scope of what they're doing, yeah. Again, Sam Raimi, I was glad that Sam Raimi did it, that he got a yep. shot at the Marvel ring, as it were. But for me, it's just a fun distraction that I lean into. Yeah, I think for me on this one, it got to the point where so much was happening that it became the oversaturation thing. And it started to be like, I didn't understand why a lot of, like the musical fight, cool idea, but what is the point of this and why is it happening? Right. It's like a set piece opportunity, which is what those films are basically, is these sort of set pieces. And can we string the set pieces together in a way that works better than other films or other opportunities? I don't know. I feel a lot of those movies for me, depend very much on my mood going in. Like, if I walk in in a bad mood, I'm going to hate them. <laughs> and <laughs> this one, I definitely wasn't in a good mood when I watched. But it, it's one of these things, too, when Sam Raimi, much like Peter Jackson and a lot of other filmmakers, started out with these, like, super punk rock, mm-hmm. you know, low-budget, evil dead, dead alive kind of stuff, you know. And then to know where they came from and see them with these massive multiplex blockbusters – First of all, it's like, hell yeah, I get paid. But then also, I miss the the hunger from the early days. You know, and especially with Sam Raimi, who kept it alive for so long. 
I was particularly struck by how bad the CGI looks in this one. Like the zombie stuff, right? Not even that, but like the Zoomer reference here is that I felt like I was watching Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Like <laughs> it looks like that. And it was like, God damn, you could get Robert Rodriguez to make this movie on like a fourth of the budget and it would be way better. Like I would take that. Did Elfman do the score? I think he yes. did. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He did. And much in the same way that you go through 20 minutes where nothing is happening and the script is dog shit and Benedict Cumberbatch can't keep his American accent straight for longer than five <laughs> seconds. Then you get like a tiny little guitar riff and it's like, oh, there's Danny. And then it goes back into the same mass produced. Um, he was just on Bullseye, the NPR show, Danny Elfman. And it was a really great interview with him. Did you hear this one? Yeah, yeah. You know, just listening to him talk about the early days of Boingo and the part <laughs> that I liked in the beginning when he was like, you know, I guess uh, it might have been a little difficult uh, in the beginning and, you know, everything, maybe, maybe I could have been nicer to the people in the band. And, you know, he was a kid at the time and I think it was very much my way or the highway. Sure. But then it was, it was interesting listening to him talk about his film composing so Tim Burton hired him for Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which was his first major film score. And, you know, he just said this very relatable stuff about every moment I thought I was going to fail. Right. And he hires me to do this thing. I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never done a film before. Like, this is completely outside of my league. It's a major studio release. Right. And, you know, he's like, I was just kind of trying stuff and hoping for the best, you know, thinking that this score would be, you know, taken out and replaced with a better one at any moment. And then comes up with what I think is one of the all-time great film scores. You know, yeah. legitimately amazing start to finish, yeah. still holds up. Reflects the timbre and the tone of that universe so much so that yep. you just, you hear like three bars of it and you're in that world. That's right. I just watched Midnight Run last night and he oh, did, dude, he did that best. score too, which is a very un-Elfman-y because it's just a, like a blues. Very bluesy. Yeah, harmonica, yeah. blues rock kind of thing. You would never know that was Elfman. Which that's when I was like, okay, this cat's got a palette. It's not all the tritone Batman stuff. Yeah. Which there's a lot of that too. That Midnight Run score has stayed with me for years mm. too, because it's the bluesy thing with the brass, right? Right. Ba, 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 ba. It's such a great score. And the comedic nature of it too, which is what struck me, because you could have played those scenes more as drama and anxiety, you know, when they're kind of running away from yeah. being shot. But there's this humor that's sort of there, but still keeps it fun and serious in a weird way. And it's just such a perfect film. I don't know if you've ever seen it. No, no. Yeah, Robert De Niro in like one of his, I think, best subtle comedic roles. Couldn't agree more. It's a very underplayed comedic role. And then even more underplayed than him is Charles Grodin. Mm. Charles Grodin is an accountant that stole money from the mob. And De Niro is a bounty hunter who's bringing Charles Grodin back. And it's his last chance to kind of make some money on this guy. And so two of them going cross country. So it's a road thing. I stopped and rewound this. There's the one point where De Niro is calling the guy that's going to pay him all this money. And he knows that his phone is tapped. So he doesn't want him to know where he is. He's like, where, where are you calling from? Oh, I'm in Boise, Idaho. No, wait, I'm in Anchorage, Alaska. No, wait, I'm whatever. Right, right, right. And he's like, if you fuck me on this, I swear to God, I'm going to shoot him and dump him in the swamp. Right. And, and Charles Grodin <laughs> is standing right next to him. And he looks at Grodin and he goes, and it's the most yes. subtle, <laughs> the most subtle. I'm doing it no justice because I rewound and watched that like five times. It's just so good. It's like, oh my God. And that's what the whole film is, is this kind of underplayed, but broad comedy. With some big moments too. So there's some big action moments. Yeah, right? Helicopters yeah. exploding and gunfire. But then, you know, the two of them on the bus, shoulder to shoulder. Why are you unpopular with the Chicago Police Department? 
you know, yeah. and De Niro was just getting so <laughs> fucking annoyed. Like he's just, you know, you know what? Just, yeah. And it's great. And then yeah. this music is killer. One of the all-time great De Niro performances, hands down, comedy or not. If you listen to, I forget what album it's on, but the main theme, da, 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 where it goes from minor to major, is on a later Boingo song called Try to Believe. Oh, so he cool. repurposes kind of the main theme of Midnight Run for a later Boingo song. Oh, I think it's on neat. their last mm. album, but it might be Darkness, Dark at the Edge of the Tunnel, whatever that is. But yeah, that movie, I, I grew up watching it. I watch it regularly, you know, once every couple of years, and it never gets old. It is just pure joy from start to finish. Yafit Kodo is incredible Yafit in Kodo, it. Like yes. one of the all-time Dennis Farina performances every time. And I mean, every time I'm walking through the main hall of an airport, part of my brain yeah. is going, Serrano's got the discs. Serrano's, got, Serrano's the got, the discs. got the discs. Serrano's got the discs. We would yell at each other. Like if we were setting up the band somewhere in a big hall and like <laughs> Vinny, the bass player would be in the back of the hall by the desk or whatever. And he'd always say, yep. Serrano's got the discs. That's the big finale. Yeah. And this is how you can tell George and I are basically the same. <laughs> <Like, Yeah. laughs> is this more on number one or more on number two? That's always the call too. Yeah. Is this more on number one? Put more <laughs> on number two, two on. Oh, do you know what I forgot is that, what's his name? I want to say Ashcroft, the actor who plays Marvin, is Taggart from Beverly Hills yes, Cop. right. The polar opposite of that character. Yeah, he's like yes. this button-down cop. Here he's this junkie bounty hunter asshole guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and he's so great. Marvin, Marvin, Marvin! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I did a quick Danny Elfman film score Google just so I could have like the full list. Today I learned he did the music for all three Fifty Shades of Grey movies. What? Wow. Wow. Good for him, man. Get your bag. There's three of those? Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. Well, at least one's in production if it isn't out already. Yeah. There was an article going around, I don't know, within the last year about, you know, like the composers that don't write their stuff anymore. They kind of maybe sketch out a few things and hand it off to their team. And I think it's like Hans Zimmer or people like that. Oh, makes sense. To me, so much of the film scoring is the orchestration. And I think that's Steve Bartek and a lot of the Elfman stuff, uh, although I could be wrong about that. I mean, the Simpsons theme itself was he literally just gave that melody and the accompaniment, you know, the basic chordal accompaniment. And that was all Alf Clausen. Yes, who's amazing. Amazing. Who the orchestra, not to take away, but it's like, yeah, it's all about the orchestration. Yeah. They never get credit, like as prominent credit, you know, it's there buried in the the credits. Do you know the band Refugee, Brian? No, I don't. This one keyboard player before he joined the band, yes, for one album, Patrick Moraz, he had this band called Refugee, mm-hmm. and it was a three-piece keyboard, drums, and bass. And I had never really heard of them, but I always liked Patrick Moraz because he was a really interesting keyboard player. And he, No relation to uh, Jason? No, no, no. Yeah, Moraz. He was a Swedish guy, I think. Okay, got it. Anyway, brilliant piano player. And he did Relayer, which is one of my favorite Yes records. It's a very different record. the jazziest, sort of most fusion-y record that Yes ever did. They had this band called Refugee, and they released one album. And on this album, it's like from 1971, 72, there was this thing called the Grand Canyon Suite. And I swear the Simpsons theme is in. (laughs) And I know Danny Elfman was listening to this stuff, you know, when he was in his probably (laughs) teens and 20s. I know he had this Refugee Uh album. Because I'm driving in the car listening to this thing for the first time, and I went... Like, 
holy shit, it's the Simpsons theme. Like, oh my, this must have been even subconsciously somewhere in Elfman's thing. I should find the actual tune. And it, like the theme comes back a bunch of times and it's totally wow. the first half of the Simpsons theme, which I'm convinced was just imprinted on Danny Elfman probably as a prog kid. Did you Google this? No, I haven't. I should, I should see if anyone else has thought of the same thing. Because it's even the same octave and the same timbre and it's like, what? Really? That's wow. awesome. Wow. So... Homage or coincidence. Homage or coincidence, you know. right. That's my whole compositional style. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds better than stealing. Yes. 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 Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Brian, I got to commend you on the matching between your shirt and your new, is it a Korg? That is a Nord. Nord, excuse Nord me. Nord Red, yes. Yeah. It's beautiful. I was actually going to talk about this as one of my peaches because of the tour, which we can talk about in just a second here. I decided it was time to upgrade from my $400 Privia, which, you know, does one sound poorly, to... Uh, <laughs> I've got a Privia. It's great. We recorded an album with it, and I was so disappointed in the tone. I used one for years. That was my go-to touring keyboard. And then hearing it on a recording, I was like, oh, I just... It's a bad piano sound. So I was like, you know what? I'm technically a professional musician. I should have a... <laughs> Nice piano. <laughs> and so I, I, you know, this thing ain't cheap, but this is a forever keyboard. So it's just amazing. I had the same thought five, six years ago, I guess it was, where like I bought drums, like my second drum set after having been yeah, a professional yeah, yeah. musician for 20 plus years, where it sort of occurred to me like, I really should buy some drums. Like, like this is what I do for a yes. living. Because I had an old kit and I recovered it. Yeah, and always amend and fix and ratchet. And I'm thinking... Yeah, I'm like a professional musician. I should probably have a drum set that like is, you know, yeah. The Privia thing. I saw years ago, I was on doing a show and it was the woman that sang with The Grateful Dead. I forget her name, Diane something. She was like on two albums with The Grateful Dead and she was doing this little tour and she was like at this festival that we were playing at and her keyboard player had a Privia that he sawed in yeah. half. So he could fold it. <laughs> he, he like he took the guts out. He sawed it in half. He had a big oh my ass God. Home Depot hinge on the top of this thing. And he literally at the end of the gig could just fold it in half and put it in a case. And it was in a suitcase he could carry around. A full 88 key privy. And he's like, yeah, these oh privies are great because you can't break them. Like they're yes, so well that's built. That's 100% true. You can literally saw the fucker in half and take it home with you, which is what he did. I thought, oh my God, I love it. I think I have purchased in my lifetime probably 10 Privias, you know, it's expensive and annoying to fly with them because it's a huge fucking keyboard. So what we would do is before the first show, I would go to a local guitar center, buy a Privia, which is between 500 and a thousand bucks. We would use it for tour. And at the end of that leg, we would all sign it and sell it at the March booth. Oh, that's brilliant. Oh. And look, it's an expensive item because it's, you know, hundreds to a thousand dollars. We wouldn't do like a big markup for the signatures, but it was like, this will be a cool item for someone to have. And also we make a little money by selling it, but more importantly, we don't have to fucking fly the thing yeah. back to LA. So every time we went on tour, I would buy a new Privia and then sell it to someone at the end. At some point I had two of them here because one of them, you know, found its way back. I think we donated it to a school or something, but I went through so many of them because they were relatively inexpensive and very, and like you said, sturdy as hell. Yeah. And they play nicely too. My main objection was just the piano sound. Uh, I wanted some better sounds. And also this, like this thing, it, it's honestly terrifying. I, I will use, <laughs> if I'm lucky, 5% of its, you know, abilities. There's a lot of knobs on it, but the way these things are organized, parts in organ, 
parts a piano slash electric piano. Then there's a synth, and then there's a bunch of effects, and they all have their own little place they live. George, have you ever played with the organs on these Nords? Matt has one. Yeah, Matt from the former band has one, and he was showing me some of the drawbar stuff. Yeah, it's insane. It's so cool. Yeah, Brian, have you played with that? A bunch yet i was very impressed with that when i was in your garage briefly the other day yeah i messed around with it it's also a fun way to teach my kid about like the overtone series because oh, I, yeah. you know i pull yeah. up an organ sound and i'm like okay here's the fundamental boom all right let's look at the next one and the next one and the next one and so i can like you know teach her some music stuff from it too and also she gets to make ridiculous noises on it because we can you know dial it around so i started to read the owner's manual which to quote Beetlejuice, this thing reads like stereo instructions because it basically is like, it's very dense. There's a lot of buttons. There's a magic button here, this one. And what that does is it makes every button have a different function because every button secretly has two right. options. So that's a shift button. So just in case you didn't think there were enough fucking buttons on this thing, there's actually twice as many and they all do two things. It's insanity, but it is very exciting. And honestly, the really cool thing about this too, not to spend the entire time talking about this machine. Brought to you by Nord. Yeah, seriously. You know, like many modern keyboards, it has a USB thing which you can use as MIDI, but also you can open up the Nord app and load tones on it yeah. from the computer. Ooh. And samples too. We used to do She Blinded Me With Science mm-hmm. and we couldn't find clean samples of the the doctor yelling, science! We, every yep, every yep. sample we found, it was a dirty sample. There was no isolated sample. So I just re-recorded it. I did my version of it. <laughs> so it's me yelling, science! You know, And yeah, I just sent him these MP3s and he loaded it up. It's wow. so easy to use. I'm actually curious, George. So I don't know if you're the same with this. With all the like synth stuff, yeah. I have a vague appreciation of what knobs do. And then I fiddle with them until it starts to sound cool. That's the right approach. Okay, great. I'll look at the name, whatever pre-assigned name they give you that is some sort of secret code because they can't actually use the real name. It'll be, you know, Van Halish, you know? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. That kind of thing. Or Tom Open Sander. Arms. Right, yeah. Open hands, you know? And then that gives you this idea of like, oh, okay, this is the Tom Sawyer sound or this is that famous synthy thing. Right. I love that that thing just has those bass tones. I just love those sub-low saw note yep. kind of like it yeah. was like really freaking low oh, fast I love that. yeah the mini mogs do that really well too they're like the sub 37 there's a specific lead on that that lead slash which is mostly a <laughs> used as a bass like it's just that perfect sawy bass yeah, thing dirty oh. low octave like the stuff the beasties used all the time for that so cool. Oh, I learned about something the other day. I'm curious if you know this, George. So I went to NAM Global Headquarters in Carlsbad. I think we talked about this on the show, but I want to ask if you you have heard of this guy. Don Lewis and the Live Electronic Orchestra. Do you know what this is? No. All right, I'm going to text you both a picture. So this is from the Museum of Making Music at NAM Global Headquarters in Carlsbad, California, which is a very cool museum for kids because they just have a bunch of instruments out that kids can play. Audrey played a harp guitar and a banjo. Oh, yeah, you did tell me about this guy, yeah. So have you, have you guys both gotten this? Yeah. Okay, so this thing, this is pre-MIDI. This guy, Don Lewis, who's the guy in the background there, sets up this gigantic, I mean, look at that apparatus on the right of the picture there. Love it. He sets this thing up so he can perform solo. And apparently immediately gets in trouble with the union 
<laughs> who right. has some sort of rule, which is like, there's not enough musicians. There's too many instruments <laughs> for one musician. No. And gets kicked out of whatever union because he's set up this solo recording thing. Wow. But it is, to me, just the peak of synthesizer nonsense yeah. from the 70s. I mean, look at this thing. That's fantastic. It's beautiful. We'll post a picture in the episode. I'd never heard of him or the setup before, but I'm like obsessed with it now. And it like probably sounded exactly what a $50 Casio sounded like eight years later. <laughs> exactly. You know, like, yes, like seven 100%. years later, you could yeah. go to Toys R Us and you would get the same exact synth sounds coming out of yep. your Fruit Loops synthesizer or whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> For people who can't see it, it's like seven keyboards in various forms set up attached to a giant patch board. It's just amazing. <laughs> it's pure chaos. I thought it was Herbie Hancock, but no. Yeah, I can see that vibe, yeah. Well, there's a very famous story from the 40s, I think it was. In New York City, there was some issue with the musicians' union. The union in the city still is actually pretty decent, but back then in the 40s and 50s, it was like you had to have X number of musicians on every gig, orchestral things, you know, all the shows, you couldn't have pre-recorded music, Broadway, whatever it was, it was very, very tight. And so mm -hmm. some promoters or something knew that there was going to be this strike, this walkout was going to happen. So they found someone who was in the early stages of working on synthesizers, again, 50s, early, early synthesizer stuff. And they said, can you put together like two minutes of orchestral music, like with, you know, 50, 60 parts to it. And the guy was like, yeah, it's going to take me like three months to do this, but I could put something together. So he starts working on this and he gets this like little score and he makes whatever symphony he puts together of, you know, all these synth clarinets and synth oboes and synth strings and whatever. And they go into these union negotiations and the non-union people say, you are all replaceable. We are at that point where you have no leg to stand on your- In the 40s. In the 40s. You're all replaceable with the technology which is coming out. And they're like, no, we're not, no, we're not. And he said, just the other day, I called, you know, William Smith and send me something over today. And he sent me this and he plays him this tape that of course the guy had been working on for months and months and months. And yep. like all the union people are like, fuck, because they're hearing this symphony <laughs> come out of this. He just wrote this yesterday, whatever it was, you know. And so the whole negotiations were then set up and I guess the non-union people got the better deal because everyone was afraid of losing their gig because of this fake oh, wow. synthesizer thing that was put together that was a total bluff on that one guy's part. Crazy. But nothing has, <laughs> nothing has changed. At every point now, it's always like, use this half of the stage, use this third of the stage, use this corner of the stage. You know what? Stay off yeah, the stage yeah. and do it from home. But you can, okay, you know what? Don't do it from home, but do it from that one room in your <laughs> yeah do it in your bedroom i'm not paying for any plugins yeah right. like you know do it yourself and then we're going to take what you've created and we're going to sell it and we're going to make the profit off the thing and that'll be fine so yeah speaking of that this is late night with brian wecht over here we have Layton gray that was beautiful and the one who spoke was the beautiful brian wecht mystery guest who are you oh hi i'm george robb from the geologic podcast and other sundries so nice to be yes. here again even though I'm, I'm yeah, where I always am, but virtually with you lovelies. <laughs> it's awesome to have you back. One of the many reasons I wanted to talk to you again is that you and I are heading out on the road pretty soon. Oh Actually, the, the day that this comes out, so this comes out on the 16th and then in the 19th in Cleveland will be the first of a series of shows George and I are doing together. And I'm very excited. Yeah. I've never been like on a bus on a tour before. I've never done the multiple city thing before, so I'm very excited. 
I'm anxious, yeah. but excited too. <laughs> and wondering how long before I'm strung out. Right. <laughs> how many hours will it be before I write that song about how hard it is to be a musician? <laughs> how hard it is to tour on this electric yep. horse that I'm riding cross country. <laughs> and if only my baby can know how I'm longing <laughs> for her. Yes. But I have to go on arms. stage and satisfy these throngs of people. And the weight of this is just... Yeah. How long will it be yeah. before that song is written? <laughs> By Wednesday, I think I'll be there. By Wednesday. <laughs> the first night of the tour. Actually, it's a good idea to have that. Yeah. It's so fun, dude. I'm, I'm so excited to have you. I appreciate the offer, man. It's great. No, of course. Our band is in such a weird place with this odd journey of going from playing to very, very small audiences to suddenly playing to much, much larger crowds. So we never did like the full drive yourself sprinter kind of tour, you know, we basically leapfrogged over that middle section and went straight from comedy clubs to 20 people to, you know, like a thousand or so people on a bus. And I don't regret not doing the sprinter stuff because it's really, really hard. You know, you wake up early, you drive for a long, long time, you get to the gig, you're exhausted and then repeat as many times as possible. Right, right. So the bus thing, we're very, very lucky to be able to do it. And it's fun. It's this camaraderie, you know, it's like this giant RV full of musicians and crew and, and everything. Yeah. One bus or two. I don't even know what the setup is like. Yep. One bus. Cause we'll have about 10 ish people on it total. And the layout of the bus, it, it really, it, if you walk in, you'd think it's just an RV. So in drivers up front, then there's like a lounge section. Then there are the berths. There are 12. So it's four banks of three. And then there's a lounge in the back, usually. Shit. Experiences vary. Sometimes there's an upstairs, which is like, you know, another lounge. Sometimes there's a bed in the back rather than the lounge, although we never get that bus. But yeah, it's a fun experience. My favorite part of it is I'm a terrible sleeper. Terrible. Always have been. <laughs> Your bunk is pitch black. Right. There are no windows there. So you can dial up the AC and it's just this dark little coffin that you're in. <laughs> yeah, climb into your metal coffin, baby. <laughs> yep. And although, you know, I, I learned early on, probably five years ago was our first bus tour, someone told me something that I had not considered as the best piece of advice I'd gotten, which was sleep feet facing the front in case there's a sudden stop. Yes. Where I was like, mm. oh, yeah, right. I would prefer not to get spinal damage. Right. You know? Concussed because of a Volvo that's in front of you. Yeah, yeah. That's right. At some point, I think we drive through the Rockies and we did that on past tours and you wake up and you're like at a 45 degree angle <laughs> and you're like, oh, God, well, I hope everything's okay outside. I have like a weird irrational lifelong fear of being at extreme angles. It's not height. It's like, if I am at a steep angle, I panic. I don't know why. And so that sounds straight out of my nightmares. You mean like in a car or standing? In a car or standing. Okay. or Like if you're going up like an angled surface, just the idea that like any slip and you could fall down and you'd just be sliding. I don't know why, it freak, but I've had like panic attacks going up like really? trails or streets that are too steep. Oh, even yeah. like walking. I see. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do you like stairs? Stairs are fine. There are many flat surfaces okay. on which you okay. can be along this incline. There's like a street. I think actually... It may be one of the steepest streets in Los Angeles, but I used to date a guy who lived at the top of that street and me trying to be like, Haha, I'm totally normal and cool that we're walking to your place right now and I'm not panicking or anything. Yeah. Listeners at home, does anybody else have that? I have so many nightmares about that shit. 
there are some like San Francisco level streets here in LA. Not uh, many, but there are a couple in like the Silver Lake kind of area, right? Mm-hmm. It feels like it's a 45 degree angle. It's an insane slope. The kind of thing where you're getting to the top and you can't see over it until you have crested <laughs> and are going down the other side. I'm not scared by them, but I don't love it. Yeah. Going to San Francisco is always incredibly stressful for me. So, right. There must be a name for that. There must be some kind of. There's got to be. Anglophobia or some kind of. Anglophobia. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Wow. Yeah. I like that a lot. Angle. That's a good episode title. It's never quite as steep as it feels. Like I know. No. The SGU, we were in uh, Seattle. Oh, yeah. And we were walking up the street and. Bob, one of the novellas, I can't tell them apart anymore. One of them was just like, God, this must be like, you know, 35 degrees. And I'm like, no, it's probably like six. And he's like, no, yep. no, no, no. And I happen on the phone. There's a lovely little gradient app thingy. Yeah. And yeah, it was like a seven degree slope, but it felt like this wall, especially when it's long, it just feels endless. Whereas if you actually yeah. get on a 45 degree, like if you're really on a 45 degree thing. Oh, you're fucked. That feels just like a wall wall. Yeah. It's really weird. I mean, from skiing, you always learn that too, or you're standing on top of this hill and you're thinking like, oh my God, this thing is so steep. And it's like, no, it's like 20 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to ski a few times, you know, we are hills nearby in, in Jersey. Like I tried to ski a few times and I couldn't get over the... Oh my God, it's too fast. Oh yeah. I grew up, I was a four. My dad first took me skiing. Did really? So yeah, we always had a week every winter. We'd get a house up in Vermont, all the cousins. Oh, that's awesome. And so yeah, even still, you just, you get on some of these runs and it's like, oh my God, you know, but then dad, he taught me like, hey, take the length of the lift versus the height of the, right. so you do these logarithmic things and, you know, cosine and all that stuff. And it was like, that's how you figure out the angle of descent. And I'm like, oh, cool. Nerding out while we're like yeah. skiing down these tiny hills in New Jersey and Northern Maine and Vermont and stuff. So, yeah. I never went down like a black diamond or anything. What's a blue square? Is that the... What's the medium one? Yeah. The green circle yeah. is the easiest. And then the blue square is the, yes. that. I think I went down a couple of blue squares and even those, the only way I could handle it was by going crosswise, yeah, you know, yeah, in these yeah. very long S's. And of course people are whipping by you, you know, as you're cutting them off. And then snowboarders, which just ruin the mountain. But that's a two-planker <laughs> peeve that you get these snowboarders that just destroy the mountain because they just basically scrape <laughs> down slowly because right. they don't know um, how to do it. Yeah. Those that know how to do it, like real snowboarders, that's super cool and impressive. But when you're first starting, you're kind of just basically on your butt sort of scraping all the snow off the mountain. Right, off the mountain. <laughs> I have a very clear memory of the last time I went skiing where in the middle of the day, I developed some kind of like very high fever and went down a hill and, I mean, like out of a cartoon, skied straight into a pole <laughs> at the bottom of the mountain. And then, you know, like the two parallel lines, the skis right into the pole and the ski stopped, but my body didn't. And so I just went flump right into the pole. And clearly I was like sick or whatever. I, at that point, I was like, you know what? I think I'm kind of done. How old were you at this point? I mean, that was probably like 16, 17, something like that. So I was not a oh, teeny child. Major blow to the ego type age. Oh, yeah. But believe me, no one was like, you know, watching me. What's the word? Shred or whatever. Like I, I wasn't doing moves. You know, I was eventually getting down to the bottom of the hill. You were fulfilling a certain expectation by getting injured in that way. I achieved the goal of skiing, which is to go from the top to the bottom. That is as strong a <laughs> statement as I'm willing to make about my 
skiing ability. Just say it was a Looney Tunes tribute and then you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, actually, <laughs> speaking of that, we just started watching the Looney Tunes with Audrey. Like, they're all on HBO Max. Yes. Really? Oh, my God. There's some new ones, too, that are actually really good. Yes. The new ones are really good. You know, I grew up watching these things. Like, they're on Saturday morning TV, the Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck Hour or whatever. And you're a kid. You're like, okay, that's funny. And then you grow up and you're like, well, actually, every single thing about these is a triumph. <laughs> like, the art is incredible. The music is amazing. The voices. Watching them now as an adult... I am just like jaw on the floor the entire time at how great they are. The voice performances, you know, Mel Blanc, who does about 90% of the voices, is just astounding yeah. how good he is, how the characterization that he produces. The characters are great. The writing's great. To me, what I'm always astounded by is when you watch like a Chuck... Fr uh, Chuck Jones. Chuck Jones and Fritz Lang were the two, two directors. For, yeah, Chuck Jones and Fritz Lang, yeah. You watch the direction that these guys are doing and where they place the camera, which is a virtual camera... They're not finding these shots. They're not going on set and, oh, let's put the camera under the table or in the tree or behind. Like they're creating this out of whole cloth. And it's an entire universe they've made in these, I mean, just gorgeous shots. Whether it's a kitchen or, you know, a vista where the coyote is running across or whatever, it's never just this Hanna-Barbera flat. And there's whatever, there's hundreds of these things that they were making every four months or whatever that crazy process was that they were doing it. Yeah, a season has like 30 of them and there's 30-something seasons. Yeah. And you look at this and it's like, you know, this gorgeous full color kind of abstract art thing. And it's from like 1941. Yeah. I am just blown away. And- my eight-year-old thinks of the funniest things ever. That's great. So they still hold up for kids today. Okay, maybe she doesn't recognize Edward G. Robinson. Right, but that's okay. But it doesn't matter. I didn't recognize half those celebrities and still don't, you know, when I was a kid in the 80s, like, because they're all from like the 40s and 50s. Yeah, well, I loved finding those people later. You would see a film yes. with Edward G. Robinson, you'd be like, oh, that's the guy in the restaurant. That, that's oh, the guy. <laughs> Although that's what Bugs is doing. Okay. I always loved that. And that shows the quality too, that it could still be funny without having to know what the reference is. That's right. Yeah. That's what's so brilliant about that writing. I mean, that was like why Monty Python was so great too. Like I didn't know any of the, not that there's that many, but any of the English references, like you didn't know what they were. Reginald Maudling. Yeah. Reginald Maudling. Who the fuck is Reginald Maudling? But it doesn't I matter. I don't know. Yeah. Because we're looking at his underwear and that's like the funny bit. Yeah. Reginald Maudling's pants. Okay. That's funny. Yeah. Just even, you know, oh, these A-cars. There's a episode with the gremlins on the plane. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, ha, gremlins, little men, you know. But he says something yeah. about A-cars. <laughs> and you're like, well, what's... And it was during the war, they had to ration gas. And A-vehicles only got a certain amount of gas because whatever. So that meant that they were breaking down and running out of fuel more often. Huh. Which 20 years later, you learn all this stuff. You're like, oh, that's the punchline. How great is that? Yeah. But you still loved it as a kid because it's Bugs Bunny and who cares? Yes. Watching Simpsons very young and then becoming an adult with any amount of media awareness and being like, oh, Citizen Kane, got it, gotcha. Perfect example. Yeah. I had that experience with PDQ Bach. Oh, yeah. So, Layton, do you have any idea what PDQ Bach is? No, at all. No. All right. So PDQ Bach is the, I guess, originally side project, but then eventually main project of this guy, Peter Shickley, who's a composer, a very talented composer. And he had this shtick where he was discovering works by the long lost 
cousin, relative? I don't remember. No, it was a bastard son. It was like the bastard 12th son. bastard son of Johann Sebastian Bach. It was PDQ Bach. Bach had a son. He had CPE. There was the other JS Bach. Like there are people in the Bach extended family. And so PDQ was basically a vehicle for classical music and other jokes that would, every year around Christmas, Carnegie Hall, they do a PDQ box show. And our mutual mentor and friend, Barry Santani, was the first person to introduce me to yes. PDQ box and say, I think you would like this. So for context, Barry Santani was our high school band conductor and a really accomplished musician and wonderful guy. And he was like, you know what? I think you should go check this out at Carnegie Hall. And just blew me away. It's very broad humor for much of it, but also very specific classical music jokes, pulling in themes from the Western canon, right? And then I heard almost all of this. By the way, exactly the same thing happened to me with Weird Al, where I would hear smoke on the water in the polka right. and then realize that it's a deep purple song. You know, So all this stuff in PDQ Bach and then studying music later in college I'd be like, whoa, that's a Schumann thing? What the fuck? Yeah. There's one PDQ Bach piece where it's all centered around one of these Schoenberg five pieces for orchestra. And I completely did not pick up on it <laughs> the first time. It's literally the Schoenberg piece with like other shit going on. And then hear that later. And I'm like, wait, why does that sound so familiar? Oh, yeah, I know the joke version of it right. where there's like an auga horn happening, you know, and a bunch of other, you know, bicycle bells and stuff. Eine kleine Nicht music versus Eine kleine yep. Nacht music, you know. <laughs> he has a wonderful thing where they do Beethoven's fifth, but there's like baseball announcers. Yes, that's a really good bit. They're yeah, doing yeah. this play by play of Beethoven's fifth. Like, oh, clarinets yep. are coming in there. Well, you know, clarinet, Steve uh, Smith, he was from Chicago. He's come in and he was a good trade this year. And like, and then like the French horn makes a mistake. The French like, horn with the early entrance. I yeah. can't believe, did you just hear that? Oh my God. That's like, that goes back to the fifth season. You know, and it's so funny because again, it's this combination yeah. of very broad, you know, silly sounds, you know, bassoons, farting and all that kind of stuff. And then incredibly specific jokes. When he did Einstein on the Fritz, which was his Philip yeah. Glass thing. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Instead of Einstein on the beach, Einstein on the Fritz. And it's excerpts from a four-hour opera where Einstein decides to pull a handkerchief out of a box and blow his nose and put it back. It's a four-hour opera. Yeah. It just that's what happens <laughs> in the entire opera. Uh, the 1712 Overture. Yeah, with the balloons. He pops balloons. So the theme is... So it's Pop Goes the Weasel with the 1812 com. But then he orchestrates everything brilliantly and... It's so well done and it's so funny. Like, obviously, the more you know, the better it gets. But it also completely worked for me as a high schooler, not understanding 99% of the references and just doing comedy in Carnegie Hall with that type of ensemble really felt it felt kind of punk rock, honestly. Like, how did he get away with doing this? Did you ever see the one? I think it was a recurring bit. He's got, I forget if, he, if Shickley's playing or, or, or whoever, it's some kind of piano solo and he's just shredding. And then they have a cop on a like motorcycle pull oh, off. Right. <laughs> Sir, do you have any idea how fast you were playing? That's right. You know, like in the middle of Carnegie Hall, like very broad, but very, very funny. Yeah. Well, you know the story of Matt, his son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he has a son, Matt Shickley. Matt had a podcast years ago. This guy got in touch with me years ago. Can I interview you? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I saw that his name was Shickley. And I'm like, I'm not going to ask him because he's obviously not related. And we kind of became 
friends or whatever. He got involved with Nexus, where he and Haiting, yep. his partner, would do stuff. So Matt is a composer, and Haiting is an opera singer. She's amazing. Yeah. And I probably know them for three or four years. We're at Nexus, I think. And someone else says to me, like, well, you ever heard Matt's dad's stuff? And I'm like, what? Like, he's... <laughs> That's the, Shickley, you know, like, and I look at Matt. I'm like, "You're his son? Are you killing?" Yeah, I, I played it down and just had forgotten about it, even. And then, yeah, and he's just cool as ever. He's just another talented, crazy musician. I did the exact opposite yeah. because I'm not as cool as you are. Which is the moment I met Matthew Shickley, I was like, "Oh my god, is your dad Peter Shickley?" Yeah. Like <laughs> right out of the gate because I've been such a fan for so long. And of course, Matt is an amazing composer and like super cool, funny guy. I think one of the most nervous performances I ever did, talk about being nervous for something where you know you're alive because you can you can feel your heart, you know, doing this, mm-hmm. was at a Nexus. He wrote a micro opera for yes. me and Hai Ting. Now, Hai Ting yeah. is an opera singer, legit opera singer. I mean, like, incredible. Incredible. You know, he wrote a piece for her, which was the ingredients of a Twinkie. Like as a little like Sonetta kind of, and she did that on some TV show, like destroyed, just mm-hmm. destroyed. But she's amazing. So he writes this thing. He's like, if I wrote this little mini opera for you and Haiting, would you be into it? I'm like, yeah, like you've heard me sing, right? Like, you know, <laughs> he's like, oh, no, it'd be great, it'd be great, it'd be great. So he writes this thing and we have a rehearsal. Yeah, I was terrified. It's like a love story between two people, but they're two non-skeptics kind of falling in love. So it's every logical fallacy that you can have sort of in the lyrics of this thing. And it's just very cute, but I shit myself because I'm about to, you know, like <laughs> I'm about to walk on stage with an opera singer singing a shickly <laughs> piece. Like, what are you thinking? And you know, it went fine, but you're yeah. great. Uh, it's very nice, but yeah, sometimes go for it. And if hopefully the people are cool, it'll turn out. Okay. So, right. And no one's cooler than those two. Seriously. We got to talk about this, too, because it's in your screen now. We got to talk about Stan Freeberg. Oh, my gosh. So, Leighton, do you know Stan Freeberg? Yeah, poor Leighton. It's just all this, yeah, sorry. All this Gen <laughs> X horse shit. And it's not even Gen X. It's like it's like the 1940s through the Gen X filter. It's boomer shit. <laughs> I'm happy to be along for the ride. You're very kind. You're very kind. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, Stan Freeberg is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> George and I just discovered, like, I don't know, two weeks ago or something that we're both huge Stan Freeberg fans. So Stan Freeberg was a musical comedian, parodist, ad man, you know, from the active in the 50s onward. I mean, a heyday, really, the 60s. He was the first guy to put humor in commercials. Oh. Because especially on television and on 50s radio. You never used irony or humor in your advertising because that would detract from the product. And Stan was the first guy to be like, no, make the consumer laugh and they'll remember the product. Even if they don't remember the product, they'll remember the commercial, which then will lead them back. So he was the first guy to like really put humor and do confusing things. Like he wrote this seven minute musical for a coffee company. Mm-hmm. Or like Omaha brand coffee or something. Yeah, these are these industrial musical. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sort of the start of that whole industrial musical thing. But yeah, like yeah, yeah. they said, can you write us a 30 second radio commercial? And he's like, sure. And he comes back. He's like, I wrote a nine minute musical. Like take radio ads out and just we'll, we'll run it and it'll be great. Butternut coffee. That's what it was. Yeah, for butternut coffee. Wow. Weird Al grew up listening to Stan. That's right. He was a major... Weird Al influence. And in fact, Stan Freeberg on the Weird Al show, when he did a Saturday morning show, Stan Freeberg played a character on that show. I mean, really one of the modern comedy music. 
he inherited the Jack Benny radio show. So Jack Benny, who was a big sort of movie star radio performer, he went to television in 1954, 55 from CBS radio to CBS television. So his radio slot was open. They gave it to Stan Freeberg. Stan Freeberg got that Sunday night slot or whatever it was, number one slot on radio. But Stan refused to have cigarette ads on his show in 1955. He's like, these are cancer sticks. I'm not doing commercials. I'll sponsor the show myself if I have to. And they couldn't find a sponsor. So there's only 13 of these radio shows ever happened because Stan was like, I'm not taking the Paul Mall ads. I'm not taking the Camel cigarettes in 1955. So it's like, dude, this guy was so ahead of the curve. Back back in the tobacco is good for your T-zone, you know, kind of era of cigarette ads, right? As a doctor, I can recommend Pall Mall because they're the smoothest <laughs> of all cigarettes. Yes, yeah. and I'm a doctor because I'm wearing a white coat. Yeah, for my pregnant patients, I recommend Pall Mall cigarettes. <laughs> Light, yeah. <laughs> the level of musicianship is astronomical, as is the voice work. He's also surrounding himself with these like June Foray level superstars of voice work in the 50s and 60s. But it's stuff that, again... I played it for Audrey. He did a bunch of parodies of popular songs in the 50s. He has a Heartbreak Hotel, the Banana Boat song, Great Pretender, Yellow Rose of Texas, like the Mitch Miller kind of, or is that, was that who did it? Mitch Miller? I think so, yeah. I, I can't remember. One of those guys. His Heartbreak Hotel is great because he's doing Elvis, but his pants are so tight that they rip during the song because he's shaking his hips yeah. so much. And again, this is the 50s. So like to have the implied thing of like someone's pants being torn, that was like so super yeah. edgy but he's like oh i ripped my jeans third pair today <laughs> third pair today <laughs> <laughs> and audrey she knows harry belafonte we play harry belafonte all the time she knew the banana boat song so the he has this recurring like beatnik character you know hey man he's one of these guys like oh, just, i can't dig that man that kind of voice who is not into the whatever bullshit is going on with pop music in the day. Like he doesn't want to play the same piano chords over and over. He, you know, he's mad at the pling, pling, pling jazz. And in the banana boat song, like this, this character gets very, his very sensitive ears. And he doesn't like the shouting, the day kind of shouting that's going on. And Audrey thinks this is the funniest fucking thing. Like she <laughs> asks for it all the time. Can we hear it again? She doesn't even want to hear the Belafonte anymore. She wants to hear the state <laughs> version because it's so funny. Too piercing, man. Too piercing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it holds up so well. Even though it's of its time so much, there is still this timelessness because the writing is so good. Yeah. You know, he's the voice of Pete Puma on Warner Brothers. Oh, I didn't know that. No, I didn't know how that. Many, how many lumps you want? Oh, a whole lot of lumps. That's Stan Freebird. And he's like 19 or something. That's crazy. Because he just walked into Warner Brothers. was like, do you need a voice artist? Wow. He's one of the chipmunks too. Oh, really? It's not Chip and Dale, but whatever the Warner Brothers version of the two little. Oh, yes. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. thank you. Oh, very much. Oh, very well. Oh, yes. nice for you. Oh, thank you so much. He's one of them too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is he really? I didn't know that. So he just sneaks up into these places. But that's amazing. Damn. Talking about Barry Santani, he played United States of America for me, which is Stan's yeah. musical, basically, of the history of the it's U.S. Magnum opus. The hardest I've ever laughed is Yankee Doodle Go Home. It's a scene where there's the famous painting of the two drummers playing, drums are marching, and there's the fife player, and there's the guy with the torn flag during the Revolutionary War. It's a famous painting. And it's that scene One of the drummers is the jazz drummer, though. He's that character. He can't stand how square the fife player is. He's just like, 
He wants it to go, yeah, da 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 da, and it should go scoopy doopy doopy doo, bo 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 doo, chickaboo. Yeah, chickaboo. So they agree. Okay, we'll do four bars your ways, four bars doodles. All right. Yeah, and he starts Yankee Doodle went to town, and then this big band comes in, and you hear the people marching. So there's like this army is marching behind them, and you hear the drums doing, and the five players playing. The foley on this stuff is bananas good and this full 16 piece big band they're like they're blowing i'm in barry's car because he's playing me this cassette i am crying with laughter because it was so unexpected you know and i thought okay i am a convert like this is my jesus now i'm gonna get every piece of stan freeberg i possibly can and i did the box sets and the book barry also introduced me to the united states of america volume one i had known about Stan Freeberg before that, because Dr. Demento had these compilations, which were the greatest novelty hits of the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and I think 80s too. And on either the 50s or 60s one, I can't remember, probably 50s, they did the John and Marsha thing. That's an early Freeberg big hit. It's just two people going, John, Marsha. John, like Marshall. three minutes you of know, every like, variation of someone someone's name that you could possibly say. It's a whole story. Yeah, huge hit, and it was on this you know greatest novelty hits of the fifties, and that's how I found out about him. I think he had another one. He had a Christmas novelty compilation where they had his Green Christmas on it, which is a very like shockingly biting satire of in the from the sixties about how Christmas is becoming too commercial. Too commercial. In the 60s. And everything they say, you're like, uh, like could be said exactly today. And you're like, oh, and it's also a billion times worse now than right, right. it was, you know, 60 years ago. We were thinking our ad should just say, Merry Christmas, peace to all. Isn't that a little old hat? Well, what are you thinking? Well, we're <laughs> thinking of, you know, Santa Claus with the big biceps and smoking one of our palm malls. I think it's 61 or 62. And he's basically saying, yeah, shouldn't the holidays be about just like, you know, family and love and, and loving everyone on earth? But it's this like six minute little mini musical and it's just so good. Yeah. The United States of America is still incredible songwriting. The Billy May arrangements. Billy May. Uh, big band arranger oh. who just like, I mean, top notch arranger and players in this band. I couldn't tell you who played in the band. It's the Columbia Cats. It's the same guys that played on all the, the, the Columbia Sinatra records. Oh, it is. I didn't realize that. That's why it sounds so hugely awesome sounding. I bet they recorded it at the yeah. Capitol Studios. Yeah, here. he did all stuff at yeah, Capitol. Yeah. yeah. When he went to remaster it, I guess he re-released it in 96, they went to Capitol and they found that one lost sketch of um, Ben Franklin and Discovering Electricity. They forgot they had this extra sketch. They put it on the re-release. You know what? I I don't think I realized I was missing because that's the first time I think I heard it because they put it on the re-release, which would have been about the first time I listened to it. Hey, Mr. Franklin, how do you like those glasses I made for you? Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) They did a volume two, and it just wasn't quite as good. There's moments on it that are okay, but I remember being so excited when I bought it. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, it starts kind of cool, and then Tyne Daly sings on it, and I like her number. The Shoot If You Must, I like that one. I don't even remember it, honestly. There's a great mistake in Shoot If You Must. The timpani player totally comes in eight bars early. And oh, really? this big doom, doom, doom. And they kept it in because they must have liked the take. Because Freeberg was very big wow. on the whole band and the singers perform the number. 
Like we don't do stuff separate. You can hear, find these recordings of them like doing commercials where the full band is playing and they have to hit the 60 second or the 30 second post and they don't, they redo it again and redo it again. So he was really big on the singers sing live with the musicians. We do it in one take and that's what the take needs to be, whether it takes 50 takes or whatever. So they must've done this one. They must've liked Tyne Daly's performance and they just left in you hear this timpani and it's like, it's so oh, wrong. I don't remember that. And then four bars later, it comes in where you're supposed to play. All right. Now, Leighton, you can talk for an hour about stuff you like. <laughs> yeah. You talk about Stan Freeberg. <laughs> All right. Well, actually, because of that, I think we should move on to segments. And Leighton, you can go first for our first segment. This is our oh, pop culture thanks. recommendation segment. You can talk about a book, movie, video game, anything you've been enjoying. This segment is called What's Poppin'? The theme song goes here in post. What's poppin'? Now, Layton, what's poppin'? What's poppin' for me, and I wish that I had a poppin' that would involve me going off for 30 minutes about something literally nobody cares about but me. <laughs> I am probably going to, going for one that's closer to y'all's interests, but I really enjoyed J.G. Ballard, and I realized mm. I'd never actually finished the Atrocity Exhibition, which I still haven't finished, but I'm actually like committed to reading it again, and it's fucking great. Is that a short story collection? Yeah, very, very loose short story collection. In particular, I'll, I'll highlight for folks who want to check it out the short story, Why I Want to Fuck Ronald Reagan, <laughs> which is written as like well. a, a, a study paper that's like talking about these gruesome like sexual interest experiments of like, wow. it's very... Ballard. Mr. Gorbachev, tear up this ass. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 really delightful. And the story of that one is that the store that like published it got sued for obscenity, <laughs> which the cool. the uh the defense like went to JG Ballard and was like, Hey, is there anything that you can say about this to help us out with this? And he was like, no, no, it's supposed to be. It, it, it's obscene. <laughs> I wanted it to be obscene. And they're like, all right, so you're going to be the <laughs> okay, prosecution cool. star witness. And then somebody made copies of it and took it to like the RNC and gave it out. And like, apparently nobody batted an eye because they were like, oh yeah, this seems like normal opposition research. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So I, I love Ballard's stuff and I want to read more of his novels, but yeah, good shit. And again, if people haven't read Crash, Crash is the best. I haven't read Crash. I did read High Rise fairly recently, and that was solid and worth reading. What happens in Crash? Well, uh, people are horny for uh, oh, so car crashes. That's what the movie, oh, is based on yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Cronenberg oh, oh, okay. movie yeah. is based oh, on Oh, I see. That. Okay, okay. Yes, gotcha. Yeah, I think it's one of the best book-to-movie adaptations of all time in terms of faithfulness. Cronenberg gets it, and I can't think of a better combination. And also the Criterion Collection cover for it was painted by Phil Hale, who is one of my favorite painters, who also, I guess, separate from this, like does these incredible, like weird car crash sex paintings where it's like just fragments of a human body, like that just kind of disappear wow. into the darkness. It's really cool. Now, is that a thing? Is that a real thing? Oh, the people having like car crash? Yeah. Sure, why not? But I mean, like, previous to the movie and the book. That's the question, right? Yeah. yeah. Was that a thing? I feel like it's impossible that there weren't, you know? Okay. From time immemorial, if it exists, I think people are horny about it. Okay. Sometimes an artist will, out of whole cloth, invent this thing 
that is like, oh yeah, this exists. And it doesn't, but it's for the purpose of the, whatever story they're telling. So like, I remember thinking right. at the time, is that a thing? Like, is that a crash fetish or is that something that's just sort of invented? I don't doubt it because what isn't a fetish, right? <laughs> and then especially after a film comes out or a book comes out, then people will get into it and then claim that it's a thing. Whatever. So, okay. Well, and then a movie comes out later with the exact same name that's really bad. And then that right. one wins the Academy Award. And right. then you can't watch the first movie anywhere on streaming because it is essentially a 90 minute long sex scene. Right. But it's like my favorite Cronenberg movie. Is it? Maybe it is. I don't know. So yeah, that is what is popping for me. Cool. Great. Uh, George? It's a television recommendation. It's a fun little distraction of a show. It's uh, it's about three episodes, four episodes in so far. It's called Welcome to Wrexham. Oh, is that good? I'm enjoying it. It's Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhaney. Is that in the McElhaney? Yeah. From It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And Ryan Reynolds, of course, from everything else. The two of them decided to buy a... British football team or Welsh in real life in real life for some reason Rob McElhinney just loved this little town of Wrexham it reminded him of kind of the outskirts of Philadelphia it's like a working man's town and they have this football team this soccer team that's there the football team used to be big like in the 60s and 70s I guess and the way the football league is set up in the UK is if you do poorly you get demoted out of the league So it's like there's like five leagues. So they were sort of saying like, imagine if the Yankees like really had a number of bad seasons, they would be demoted to playing triple A ball and then they'd be demoted to playing like, you know, beer softball eventually, you know. It's this promotion relegation. Yeah. So whoever's the top of each league gets to move up. And then, of course, the Premier League is the main one and they make the multi-millions of dollars or whatever. And so this Wrexham team over the years has just dropped further and further down. And they're in the oldest stadium like consistently run stadium in the world or something like that or soccer stadium something like that it's like 170 years old or something crazy like that anyway they bought this team and they're trying to get them into the next league and it's the story of these two american guys who don't really quite know uh what they're doing or what the connection is but it's legit it's very sweet because they are so interested in not just helping the team, but helping the town because the town has such pride in the team. It's a documentary. It's a documentary, yeah. You know, I think they bought it in 2020, so it's kind of, it's all obviously happened. But what I love is that this woman became the COO. They got all these offers from all these men, of course. So they found this one woman who has been uh, successful with these other teams. They found a coordinator for accessibility for the stadium, which I thought was like really cool. Feels like real life Ted Lasso. Exactly. Yeah, it's very sweet. You know, I was going to watch one because they're each like 28 minutes long or whatever it is. And I ended up watching like four in a row. I thought, oh, this is really fun. Welcome to Wrexham. Awesome. Hmm. Brian, what's popping? Yes. Yes. Okay. People who listen to this show know I'm always up for some smooth jazz bullshit. And I found a legitimately great new album. I can't believe I didn't know this one before. It's Bob James and David Sanborn. From 1986, Double Vision. Do you know this album, George? No, I do not. It's incredible. I mean, I'm a huge Bob James fan. Bob James, you know, keyboardist, band leader, does a lot of like jazz fusion stuff, endlessly sampled on Run DMC, like everything. And so he has this album co-released, you know, under his name and David Sanborn, a sax player. And it's it's just like one of these 
perfect kind of smooth jazz, but good smooth jazz, which is a bit of an oxymoron, but not really. Albums from the 80s, you know, the production, it's exactly what you expect. Sparkly is the only word for it. Usual murderer's row of players. You've got Bob James on the keyboards, David Sanborn on sax, Steve Gadd, of course, is on drums because it's an album from the 70s or 80s. And Al Jarreau shows up for one vocal track (laughs) where he's in, I mean, this is like prime time Al Jarreau. Wow. Moonlighting Al Jarreau. Marcus Miller's on bass. Yes, Moonlighting era Al Jarreau. It's so good. Wow. It is as a... Our friend Commander Miach from Twerp would say, it is very adult. It is a very <laughs> adult album. There's that th- th- like David Sanborn kind of Michael Brecker sax sound where it's just like really big and in your face. You know, it feels like he's playing from the top of an arena. <laughs> it's so much fun. A lot of them were written by Marcus Miller, but there's one standard they do. You don't know me. You know, do put my hand in mine, do, do, yeah. do, 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 which is also great. So I just, you know, love Bob James albums. Wow. You know, I listened to it like six times the last three days. Uh, it's really fun. I had a suit altered by David Sanborn's tailor. <laughs> Did you really? <laughs> she literally had a shop four <laughs> blocks up the road here called So On and So Forth. <laughs> Really? Get oh it? my God. Get it? <laughs> yeah. I just randomly walked in and I was like, do you tailor men's suits? And she's like, sure. And so we start chatting and she's like, are you a musician? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, yeah, I thought I could sort of tell by your, your, your vibe, your style. I'm like, geez, it's that obvious. Okay, thanks. And she's like, do you know David Sandler? I'm like, yeah, of course. She's like, well, I'm, I'm his tailor. She like would drive oh into the God. city and apparently he had, I don't know if he has some kind of uh, muscular dystrophy or some kind of a something. Oh, really? So his oh, one no. shoulder is significantly like smaller than his other. And she was saying hmm. she had to pad the suits out to like compensate. And like that became her thing. It was like her bag that he knew he could go to her with any kind of suit he would bring her, any blazer, and she would make it look wow. quote unquote normal okay. or whatever. You know? Yeah, yeah. And like once you sort of know that, you sort of start to see that, like, oh yeah, that one shoulder's a little bit weird. It was some kind of bone disease he had as a kid or something like that that was uh, involved. So yeah, so oh, well, I know interesting. David Sanborn. That's as close as I got to David Sanborn. That's wild. Celebrity horn players, what an incredible genre of human being. <laughs> I mean, there's like the Kenny G's, <laughs> which is a whole different level. Yeah. But I'm talking about like Chuck Mangione, you know, Michael Brecker, you know, this level of person. Someone who's not just, who who did crossover appeal? What's interesting is I think that's kind of gone. There's no current instrumental. I anybody. They're YouTubers who are are pretty well known, right? You'll never have that Chuck Mangione, like a number one hit instrumental. That's right. Like Kenny G's the last guy to do it, really. Probably, yeah. And there are all these guys that came out of funk, like your Maceo Parkers or Fred Wesley or the JB, like extended universe people who were, I don't think quite had cross. I mean, they had some crossover. Fred Wesley had hits for sure. Yeah, but not like a Kenny G, not like a multi-million. Not like a Kenny G, yeah. You tweeted about the tour and you said it was going to be this and this and smooth jazz and whatever. And that one guy... I saw this. So this one guy chimes in, like, I've heard smooth applied to all kinds of jazz. He said it was, like, redundant. Why are you saying smooth jazz? Isn't all jazz smooth or something he, like yeah, that? Yeah, he got right? there eventually. But it was kind of like, what other descriptors can be used for jazz? And so me, like an idiot trying to help, 
<laughs> I added, well, there's acid jazz and there's sample jazz and big band jazz. And I list all the kinds of jazzes that there are. In a very even keel, yeah, like, like oh, educate just, here. Yeah, here's, yeah. There's tons. Oh my God, there's a whole universe for you to find, you know, like check it out. And he's like, no, no, like, but, but smooth, like smooth <laughs> is the only one that's applied to all of these styles. So I'm like, what are you, wait, what? I'm like, no, smooth is a style. And he's like, no, smooth isn't a style. He thought it's just an adjective. He thought it's just an yeah. adjective. Like, um, yes, it is an adjective, but it's also a style. And I'm like, there's a very specific type of sound and structure that is associated with. And like, it took like six responses before he finally realized like, oh, it's a style. Oh yeah. Like the same way that acid jazz or hard jazz or jazz funk. What, 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 yeah. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. Is a has specific genre things, you know, whether it's timbre or chordal movement or harmonic, you know, and he finally was like, Oh, I didn't realize this style, thanks. And I was like, Oh, check out the Kenny G movie, which actually is quite yeah. excellent. This documentary about Kenny G. It doesn't pull any punches, it's really good if you want to learn about what the fuck smooth jazz is, because it's a thing. <laughs> it's not just yeah. an adjective. Also, not a new thing. I mean, right. it's existed since the late 70s, early 80s. I watched that conversation kind of as it was happening. And I was like, you know what? I'm just no, it's not good. getting involved. I almost texted you. Can you believe this guy? I was proud of myself that I never got to that. Listen, asshole. This is what yeah, I yeah. never got there. You had a very smooth jazz attitude yes, right. about it. Yeah, very pentatonic. <laughs> yeah. All right. Final segment time. This one's called Peaches and Lemons, where we each say three good things and one thing that is a little annoying. And the theme song goes right here. Excellent. That was the theme song. We're each going to start with a lemon, which is a thing that is a minor bummer, annoyance, peeve, whatever. I'll start. It's fucking hot out. It's too hot. It's so hot. It's so goddamn hot. Let's check. Is it 100 yet today? No, it's only 97. Oh, good. Well, the sun goes down and you're like, oh, thank God. And then it's still boiling hot in the middle of the night. That's the worst. I'm sweaty. I'm gross. I'm constantly dehydrated no matter how much I chug water. And I have fucking Billy Joel's pressure stuck in my head. (laughs) And I don't know why. And it's really driving me nuts. You know, not a Billy Joel fan, but that synth in that song fucking slaps. And so it's just that going in my head as I'm feeling the rivulets of sweat travel down my back. So that's my lament. I keep meaning to tell you, Layden, we should try this because I'm doing this right now. These SM7s only pick up very close. So you can have your AC on probably. And it won't. Oh, I have my AC on. Okay, you do. Okay, great. (laughs) I have a fan. I have another fan. I have my AC on. Scalp wet. I realized for a while I was turning off the AC when we were recording. And then I was like, wait a minute. I know what the fucking pickup pattern on this mic is. And I just turned it on and Mike doesn't even hear it. Like, it's perfect. Yeah, it will pick up my dog barking in the background perfectly, though, as God intended. (laughs) She is trying so hard to get out of my lap. And it's like, if I let you out, you're going to start barking at me because you're not getting any more treats. So, yeah, all right, weirdo. It's something about LA where you get to like late June. You're like, oh, summer isn't so bad this year. Okay, it's like... It's really not so bad. It's like, you know, 70s, 80s. (laughs) But then fucking September hits and it stays brutal sometimes through the end of October. Wow. Well, and then you get to Thanksgiving and you're like, oh, you know, it's nice out. It's a cool 85. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. 
you know, this is my seventh year living in LA. It is always hotter at this time of year than I expect because in my mind, it is fall now. It should be 60 something degrees out. Mm -hmm. It's going to be consistently over 80 for the next two months. It has always been that way since I've lived here. And yet it still comes as a shock to me every year. Yes. <laughs> when does snow start by you, George? Because you're in. I mean, you get little hints of it in November. I love a good monster snowstorm. Oh, yeah. Same. You know, we would get like two of those a year or so. I'm looking forward to the cold. We had upper 95 and hotter days, which we don't normally have for like a week or two. That whole thing of like 96 at night. Yeah, awful. That's what makes it the worst. Like during Music Fest, which is this big festival we had here in Bethlehem, the first couple of days, you're walking around outside at nine o'clock and it's 94 degrees. And you're thinking like, well, what? Yeah. How is this a thing? And it's humid by you too, yeah. I would imagine. My AC survived the summer, which I can't believe Good. it did. So. Wow. I'm surprised. We'll see. I love a cold shower. They're the best, especially in the summer. But you know it's bad when you crank it all the way to cold and it's still hot, like just ambiently yes. hot oh, water. Yes. Uh-huh. I'm just like sitting there waiting for it to switch over to ice cold. And it's like, no, it's not. It's not hot. Oh, God. <laughs> I can go next with my yeah, lemon. Just real quick. We leave tomorrow for tour. And so today is just, I'm going to be away for a month chaos it has nothing to do with being on tour. It has everything to do with being away from home. And there's just like a thousand things to check off the list. I mean, good problem to have. Like, I'm excited to go on tour and everything. But still, it's like, wait, what do I have to fucking do today? Oh, which cables do I need to pack? You know, <laughs> I realized I needed a longer cable for something. That's hopefully going to get delivered today. All these things can be dealt with on the road. But it's just like running around like crazy today. Kudos for recording today, man. If I was a day away yeah. from a month tour, there's no way I'd be talking to anybody on the internet. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. No, it's it's nice. You know, we were able to, to do a bunch of recordings ahead of time and kind of lock down all the podcast stuff. But this is the longest I've been away in, you know, three years, wow. maybe yeah. even longer. And certainly the longest I've been away since we started this podcast. So we've never had to oh, yeah. bank episodes in quite the same way we've done. Mm. It honestly worked out really well. I was nervous about yes. this period coming up, but you leaving and us having a bunch of episodes banks per banked perfectly corresponds with me having a big fat deadline. So yeah, <laughs> George. So I live over a bar. It's under me ish, which when I moved into this place 29 years ago, wasn't nearly the bar it's become. And especially after COVID started they started having seating outside, which I was like, hey, I get it. Okay, cool. I'm glad the bar owner could have business. So now there's like a bar literally under my living room that just mm -hmm. has people there like kind of all the time, which again, I get whatever you can do to keep your business. I'm all for and that's fine. Yep. So what this leads to is I'm half a story up over the bar. So I can kind of hang out there and listen. And this provides a very fantastic anthropological opportunity <laughs> to listen to uh -huh. people that are at a bar, especially the regulars that are kind of there. Oh yeah. That I can't conceive. There's about a dozen people. They rotate in and out. It's like seven of the dozen are there from like three o'clock to 11 o'clock, like every day, like six days a week. Wow. Yeah. It's astonishing. How? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there are moments where I can put on my pith helmet, my virtual pith helmet, and just go listen to what they're talking about. Because what do you talk about for six days a week, nine hours a day? And it's nothing. They talk about nothing. 
for endless amounts of time. And it's fascinating to have that much time go by without any actual content. The thing that really surprises me and bothers me, though, is that whenever there is some kind of loud sound, whether it's a fire engine driving by, whether it's a motorcycle revving its engine, whether it's a garbage Mm -hmm. truck dumping a thing, there is a commensurate whoop, which follows the loud sound. (laughs) It matters not. The context of the sound could be gunfire, could be fireworks being set off, could literally be across the street where someone's picking up the recycling. But you'll get the initial sound, and then two of the six or maybe three of the six or seven of the regular rotation will have to just, in some kind of like congratulatory or or just some kind of tribal way, acknowledge the sound by making their own sound. And it, without fail, happens. So a police, you know, yeah, or yeah, and without fail, it bugs the living shit out of me. Because it's like the dull noise, the hum, you kind of, all right, fine, you can ignore it. But the whoop, I just don't get it. Well, it sounds like they have nothing to actually talk about. I they guess. Have to, you know, really cling on. To it. Is it this thing of like, we need to acknowledge what's just occurred and that's how we do it? It sounds like it's the only interesting thing that happens to them while they're there. Interesting, yeah. Right. And this is the event. So they're like, oh, yeah, hell yeah. Someone out there has achieved something. Totally. So we're going to cheer them on. Totally. During the festival, which again happens here in Bethlehem, this is right on the street. So there's the sidewalk in the streets right there. Someone made a cardboard sign that said honk for anal. Okay. <laughs> which it uh-huh. was funny. I like, there was a moment I was like, okay, sure. that's funny. Cars drive by, honk, woo! Cars drive by, honk, woo! This went on from 325 <laughs> till 1115. Awesome. So was it just like nonstop? Nonstop. <laughs> and it never got any less funny for the people that were there because it would be honk for anal, no, boo, no, boo, honk, woo, honk, woo, no, boo, for nine hours. <laughs> oh my god! And I, I and the part of me is just amazed that that's the level of sort of stimulus that gets that response, and you go like, oh. That's why we're in the situation we are with our government. Oh, I get it. Have you seen these people? Do you know what they look like? Yeah, they're the ones that are there. They know me. Hey, George. (laughs) Hey. And I'm super friendly. (laughs) And like, you know, occasionally at like 11 o'clock when they bring the little canned radio out and it's playing and I'll come downstairs and be like, guys, it's a little loud. Just it's a little loud. And they're like, oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Super nice. I wouldn't say super nice. Okay. (laughs) They know that this grumpy old fuck lives above them. You know, I've never called the police. I've never called anyone in 30 years. I've never done it because I get it. But it's kind of like, guys, could you just, I have a couple of like people that are there that say like, he's cool. Let's turn down a radio. It's fine. Sorry. Sorry, George. Sorry. Sorry, George. Sorry. 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 Mm -hmm. Great. I I love (laughs) that sometimes lemons really do bring it out. Of a guest, Sorry, you know, yes. you hear that. No, no, it's great. It's great. No, it's amazing. You're really giving me like Paul Giamatti vibes. Oh, okay, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so those are lemons. We're each going to do peaches, which are three good things that have happened, are going to happen, whatever good shit. I'll blaze through mine. Number one, uh, even though I hated the movie 
getting to watch Multiverse of Madness with Jory after seeing each other in person and working all day was just like the both of us fucking howling. Um, you know, I haven't actually been able to hang out with him in person in literal years, despite talking like every day. So that was great. Been listening to Doughboys again, which I always fall off of podcasts. Like I'll listen to them nonstop and then just not touch it for months and months. And I'm back. It's mm-hmm. still fucking hilarious. It kills me. Recent guest of this show, Matt Abadaka, is like their mm-hmm. most recent guest on the latest episode where they talk about the Nintendo flavors at Coldstone Creamery. So you mentioned this. What flavors are there? Can you be specific about this? There's a special Nintendo promotion where there's like a Kirby ice cream and an Animal Crossing ice cream and like a Mario ice cream. And the resounding (laughs) consensus amongst everyone is like, all of these fucking suck. These have nothing to do with Nintendo and none of them are even (laughs) good. Why would you put caramel with strawberry ice cream? It's weird. (laughs) So I I really recommend that episode. But also it's like, wow, we just talked to Matt and he's talking to Mitch and Wags. Look at it. (laughs) It's podcast transitive property. And then my third peach is that I had some Portos for the first time in several years as well. Okay. What is that? It is a big, very old Cuban bakery in Glendale. Yes. Very famous. Lines out the door. Very famous. And they they run like a well-oiled machine. Like when you go in there, it is like going to Disneyland and it moves. The line snakes just like in Disney. Yeah. Like you're going to get on a roller coaster. It's super... Super cheap. I don't know how they manage to keep it as cheap as it is for for how high quality it is. Because you go up, you can get a beautiful Cuban sandwich, like three potato balls, a slice of cake, a little chocolate twist. Like they have so many of those beautiful little desserts. Mm. And you get out for like 25 bucks and you're eating for a weekend with like snacks. Volume, baby. Volume. Totally. They've got great coffee. They've got great orange juice. Like they do fresh squeezed. I just adore Porto's. It's the greatest. What did you have? I got Cuban sandwich, then some variation on a Cuban. And it's a good Cuban sandwich too. And then I got, so they have like the potato balls, but they also have little like chicken croquette ones. They also have a pepper and cheese one. So I got a variety of those. I got some cookies that are filled with like Dolce de Leche. Amazing. Chocolate croissant twist kind of deal. Some carrot cake and some chocolate cake. Carrot cake. Oh, it's my favorite. Mm -hmm. It's very good. Yeah. And they're just beautifully presented. They've got the little like chocolate leaves on the chocolate cake. Yeah. They're gorgeous stuff. Yeah. So now I really, I need to go back. (laughs) Fuck. It it used to be like a weekly thing for me on Fridays. I would go visit Jory and we would get portos. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Oh, that's fun. Before the pandemic, we would hang out like every Friday and go get Gamtubop or portos and watch bullshit. So it's kind of been a return to form of late, which is nice. That's great. So yeah, good peaches. Who else has peaches? George? Sure. I have this thesaurus app on this new machine that Uh I just adore. I will literally just look up synonyms of words for ridiculous <laughs> amounts of time. I catch myself because I'll go there to find something and I'll just get into these lovely recursive loops of like, oh, okay, what is the synonym of the synonym of the synonym? It always extends a little bit further. Like Wikipedia pages kind of go inside each other. Again, from Multiverse of Madness seek sequence. <laughs> but it's a thesaurus and it's just so enjoyable. And I catch myself just finding words that mean the same thing as other words. And I love it. What's the app? It came with my iMac. It's very simple. You just put the words in and it's just, oh, I'm enjoying it more than any video game 
Because <laughs> I'm not a gamer at all. And I'm, I realize like, oh, this is my Mario Kart. Yeah. So there's that. I'm not a candy guy. I love sweets. I love baked goods like cookies and brownies and give me a good Viennese pastry table and I will just sleep there for a weekend. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I've gotten to love Skittles freezer pops. They're like this frozen tubes of happiness. Yeah. And they're Skittles brand. I don't know if that's even relates to the flavor necessarily, but they were just happened to be my Wegmans. And I was like, I had this while it was 95 degrees. I was like, oh, let me get some frozen pops. Five of them is 90 calories, which is awesome. You know, you snip the end off and you just hork this thing. You just you have a nice, <laughs> nice sequence. A of, nice dick of sugar. <laughs> a nice yes. dick of sugar. Yeah. Sour apple, orange, lemon, cherry, and grape. Those are the five flavors. And you get these like sausage casings. The box is 24 or something. And oh my God, so good. Are they like a nostalgia thing for you? Because for me, it's always when summer hits and Walmart has the big Mm. cardboard thing in the middle of the store with just the bags of liquid. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I've never had the Skittle version. Yeah, a little bit of that. But as a kid, I didn't really have those. To me, it's just like this lovely, relatively low calorie treat that takes time to eat, which is always key. Yeah. What's your favorite flavor of the five? I'm a cherry nut. I'm like anything that's fruit punch or cherry. I'm always that. But then it's a nice palette because you go from the kind of bittery lemon to the sweet orange to the bittery green apple to the grape, which is just its own weird world, to ending up with the cherry. And it's a nice little mouth journey that you have. So there's that. The other thing is I'm a sucker for a good Latin phrase. Uh, mm-hmm. One of my favorites is uh, ubi dubium ibi libertas, which means with doubt there is freedom, which like I forced myself mm-hmm. to learn. But I found another one, which is dum spiro spero. Dum spiro spero, which means while I breathe, I hope. Isn't that nice? Oh, Isn't very that nice. nice. That. I thought that was really nice. Theocritus in the third century is the first guy that wrote it down, apparently. Although by the time he wrote it down, it had been like used for a hundred or so years. So yeah, dum spiro spero. Wow. And there's got to be some Greek or whatever term for whatever that repid, the Spiro Sparrow. It's not alliteration, but it's something like that's kind of assonance or whatever that is. Oh, yeah, right. Spiros, but whatever that means. Those are such lovely peaches. Yay. Brian. Yes. What are your peaches? Well, one of them I already talked about, which is this Nord Stage 3. So I'm not going to talk about the Nord anymore. My second peach is we have started regularly making big ice cubes like Inch and a half, inch and a half ice cubes. Fucking awesome. And we have just this drawer of gigantic fucking ice cubes and they work in everything. I've been turning, you know, hot teas into iced teas. You just dump a bunch of them. I have this giant mug. It's like dropping cold bombs into it. It's so great. <laughs> and we just keep making them. And we used to make them occasionally. Had this ice tray for a while, but now I have regular large ice and it is honestly a game changer. And it's so great for cocktails. It was like with an old fashioned or something. I remember hearing about this a while ago and being like, hipster bullshit, stupid big ice cubes. Who fucking cares? No, it's actually better. It is measurably better. It makes it less watery. You feel classy. Yeah. Yes. You can hear this rattling around here. I put a big ice cube in this thing two hours ago and it's still in there. Goddamn. It's sizable too. And my final peach is my daughter starts third grade tomorrow. She is eight years old and starting third fucking grade. There's an old Tig Notaro bit where... You know, she's talked to some friend and the friend's like, my kid's going into third grade. Can you believe it? And she goes, yeah. 
what I wouldn't be able to believe was the opposite, was if your kid stayed five forever. That I couldn't believe. <laughs> I can totally believe that your child is aging and getting older and going into successively right. higher grades. <laughs> That's the most believable thing there is. And yet, my reaction is, I can't believe it. can't believe that she's in third grade. You're also rapidly approaching the point where you have to explain to your child what your band does. Yes. Do you have some kind of timeline? I mean, nothing that I've thought about too hard. What does she know? She knows I dress up like a ninja. We let her listen to the cover albums. That's, of course, no problem. They're all radio hits. There are certain songs she can listen to. We have some songs that don't have swearing. or They're not written to be kid-friendly, but they kind of fell into it. Other than that, she knows there are certain songs she's not allowed to hear yet. Now, why she's not allowed to hear those, we have been kind of vague about. Uh, we just said they're not for kids. They're not for kids. I have my kids' band. She can hear, of course, all that. She's on half the fucking songs. Like, she knows that stuff. Sure, but one day your little gamer is going to learn what Starbomb is. Yeah, well, that's, that's the bigger <laughs> issue. It's not Ninja Sex Party, but Starbomb, which is the hip-hop band that has a very, very explicit song about fucking Kirby, mm. one of her favorite characters. Right. Maybe I, I was thinking about the Zelda one and also the Mario. Yeah. Is there a special savings account for the therapy money or is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's called my savings account. Yes, that's where it's all going. Well, we actually, we had a conversation the other day because I like to, in the proud tradition of fathers everywhere, annoy my daughter by singing. And I have a character I break out occasionally called Rappin' Daddy. You know, I'm the Rappin' Daddy and I'm here to say that I love my daughter every day. That kind of stuff. And she hates it or pretends to hate it. Well, that's good. As she should. And she said something to the effect of... Uh, derivative, Dad. Derivative. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. 40 years out of date with those rhymes. You know, Nice Adidas, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I mentioned my my rap band. She's like, you don't have a rap band. It's like, actually, I do have a rap band. Now, I don't rap in it, but I am a member of a, a rap band, and we sing about video games. And as soon as I said it, I was like, oh, no. Oh, shit. Why did I mention this? <laughs> There's one song she can listen to from Starbomb, which is our Donkey Kong Jr. song from our most recent album. And it is about how Donkey Kong Jr. is a big, silly oaf. And that is very kid-friendly. It's silly. It's fun. She loves it. She can hear it. And I was like, oh, it's that. But the other songs you can't hear yet. And all I said is they're not for kids. Now, th there is a clock somewhere counting down to the moment she hears these songs for the first time, which may or may not be. And probably by that time, it will be because she's looking up my stuff. But it's possible she encounters them out there in the wild. They exist on, you know, if you Google Zelda or whatever, it might show up somewhere. I don't know. Does she have like internet access on her own or is it always supervised? No, it's always supervised. Yeah. Does she have a phone? She does not. She does not. An eight-year-old does not need a phone. And she's like, but I want to text my friends. And I'm like, honey, you can't spell. <laughs> you know, like, so. To be fair, a lot of adult texters can't spell. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you remember in the early 2000s when phones like the Mego or the Firefly were big, where it was like, here's a phone you get specifically for your young child. Yeah. You can call your mom, your dad, or 911. 
And I just feel like those should come back. I think they actually do have something like that. What we are thinking about doing is, because we don't have a landline anymore. So if we yeah. want to leave her home alone, which we would not for any extended period of time, maybe for 10 right. or 15 minutes at eight years old. Short tour, like the three city but, tour. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and not for any good reason, just because we kind of feel like it. Yeah. I would want some device she could use to call 911. Yeah. We don't have a landline. So I think we might get a thing that we hand to her when we leave the house and say, look, we're going to be out for 20 minutes. If there's an emergency, use this. Because if we're out, our phones would be with us. Don't those doorbell deals have oh, that? Oh, maybe. We don't have those. Rings? We have a doorbell camera, but it doesn't have that. Yeah. I think there are some that have that kind of 911 option. The little tiny phone that I was using last year, I feel like this would yeah. be good if she was older because it's still a smartphone. It's just tiny. And if you locked it down a yeah. bit, it would be just like perfect yeah, totally. little, little guy. I didn't think about it until we left her home alone for 10 minutes the other day for the first time ever. Wow. And I was like, oh shit, there's like literally no way for her to call for help while we're out because we have both phones. Yeah. You know, we don't, the landline doesn't yeah. exist in this house anymore. You could also just get like a little dumb phone, like a little Nokia slider or something. Yeah, that might be the way to do it. There are also cute little flips that you can still get. There are like some Hello Kitty ones that like, if right. she wanted to text, she would have to learn how to do T9. <laughs> so. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. No, but she she asked, I, I want a phone. And I was like, absolutely not. There's some like parenting pledge you can take, which is like no screens till 13 or something like yeah, that. Yeah. What it, It's called something pithy. I can't remember. Well, I'll wait till 8th. That's what it is. Mm. Where you say you're going to wait till eighth grade to give them phones. And her school has like a no phones on campus policy. You know, end of story. If you're on campus, phones are not allowed. Now they have laptops and whatever. We had to actually buy her a Chromebook for the first time this year. But no. Long answer to she does not have a phone and she's not fucking close to getting one because I absolutely <laughs> refuse to support that. But we also like if we're out at a restaurant or whatever – no screens. Like you are not going to be on an iPad, on your phone, or we bring a book. You can definitely bring a book, bring an activity book, bring something to read. But it drives me insane to see little kids just staring at phone. And look, I get it. Yeah. Kids are annoying. Yeah. It's hard to have a kid in a restaurant. But every time I see a kid on a screen in a public place, yeah. I have a visceral. It's not good, man. You're making these weird... Nope connections in their head where the reality yep. and the expectation and then the tech, it all gets jumbled. And yeah, yep. six-year-olds, eight-year-olds with screens. And younger. I see three-year-olds yeah. in, yeah, in yeah, restaurants. Yeah. So kids in strollers. Oh, oh, I hate and it. And then they get so upset when you take it away. Right. Like, yes. Issue. Anyway, wow, we've really gone over time yeah. talking about this shit. <laughs> I did see something funny. Someone responded to uh, the other day. And look, it's not like we say no screens. We let her watch TV and sure. play games and stuff. Yeah, you know, I was like, okay, Audrey, this is 9.30, 10 a.m. No, no screens until after lunch. And of course she says, can I have lunch? <laughs> Which is, <laughs> I mean, you're like, you got to love it. <laughs> and Problem someone solving. replied to that tweet with, when I was little on vacation, my mom said, no video games unless we're in the car. So we stole our keys and locked ourselves in the truck <laughs> and played video games all day. <laughs> Which like, kids are, as a scientist type person, I love the letter of the law right. kind of argument. The malicious compliance, yes. Yes, that's right. That's problem solving. It's problem solving. And you know what? I rewarded that yesterday. I was like, that's actually, I'm very impressed. You know what? I'll play a video game a little earlier than I thought, and you can watch me because I appreciate the hustle. <laughs> so. 
And speaking of the hustle, George and I are going to be on tour. Oh, that's and right. And you can get those tickets at ninjasexparty.com. We'll put a little bumper in front of this too. But for context for everybody, so we have the main Ninja Sex Party tour. And on off nights from that, I'm doing something called Ninja Brian's All-Star Variety Spectacular featuring me, George, Super Guitar Bros, our friend Jim Roach. And George is on every September date except the Bloomington one. That's right. So on the other dates, we have a bunch of other acts. But I think you're on six out of 11 of those shows, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. So anywhere in September except Bloomington, that'll be a show with both me and George and a bunch of other people. And it's going to be really fun. They're at smaller venues than the, the NSP shows, and it's a lot looser and, you know, kind of faster, new acts every 15, 20 minutes, something like that. So it's going to be fun. And I will, I haven't actually said this, I think publicly, well, I kind of hinted at it. Uh, these are going to be the world premieres of my smooth jazz tracks that for this album that I've wow. written and getting final mixes at on, wow. I think today or tomorrow. So for the first time, first time, wow. I'm going to be playing these for people uh, wow. publicly and performing them. So we'll see, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> It's going to be great. Yeah, I'm very excited. It's going to be a lot of fun. If people want to get tickets, where do they do that? Ninjasexparty.com slash tour or just ninjasexparty.com. And you can click T-O-U-R at the top of the page, which spells tour. Have your eight-year-old child do it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Give them a phone. And your credit card. And and your credit buy card. some that's tickets. Right. Yeah, George, thanks for being here. And uh, I'm excited to be on the road with you. Thank you. And yeah, like I said, this is the first multi-city tour I'm doing, which I'm very excited for. And thanks to both of you for letting me come and chat about things from the 50s for a while. (laughs) It's always a joy. (laughs) Anytime. George, if people want to find out more about you and what you do, where can they go? Yeah, just go to georgerob.com. H-R-A-B is my last name. You Google that and I'm the first 47,000 things. So easy peasy. (laughs) Easy yep. peasy. And if a truck does drive by and throw something out the window, please whoop and yell because it'll make yeah. your neighbors happy. Yeah. And if you're in Bethlehem and you hear that, yes. they'll know exactly where you <laughs> live. Yeah, no, it's, oh, yeah. hey, George must live here because look at these yeah. six soulless <laughs> shells of humans sitting out here at two in the morning. Love it. Well, all right, folks. Thanks for listening. You take care out there. I don't have anything pithy. What a half-hearted sign-off. It's too hot for a (laughs) sign-off. I'm looking at a first edition Why I Want to Fuck Ronald Reagan by J.G. Ballard, like original print for a cool $1,786 on a book. So, you know. Worth it. That's Wow. So worth it. You can use it to like dab your forehead and absorb the sweat. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right, folks. Don't fuck Ronald Reagan. See you next time. Great. Good advice. Bye. Leighton Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore Night, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com.